Chapter Seventeen of The Ball and the Cross. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ball and the Cross by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Seventeen The Idiot. Evan McKeon was standing a few yards off, looking at him in absolute silence. He had not the moral courage to ask McKeon if there had been anything astounding in the manner of his coming there, nor did McKeon seem to have any question to ask or perhaps any need to ask it. The two men came slowly towards each other, and found the same expression on each other's faces. Then, for the first time in all their acquaintance, they shook hands. Almost as if this were a kind of unconscious signal, it brought Dr. Quayle bounding out of a door and running across the lawn. "'Oh, there you are!' he exclaimed with a relieved giggle. "'Will you come inside, please? I want to speak to you both.' They followed him into his shiny wooden office, where their damning record was kept. Dr. Quayle sat down on a swivel chair and swung round to face them. His carved smile had suddenly disappeared. "'I will be plain with you, gentlemen,' he said abruptly. "'You know quite well we do our best for everybody here. Your cases have been under special consideration, and the master himself has decided that you ought to be treated specially.' and, er, under somewhat simpler conditions. "'You mean treated worse, I suppose,' said Turnbull gruffly. The doctor did not reply, and McKeon said, "'I expected this.' His eyes had begun to glow. The doctor answered, looking at his desk and playing with the key, "'Well, in certain cases that give anxiety, it is often better—' "'Give anxiety,' said Turnbull fiercely, "'Confound your impudence! What do you mean? You imprison two perfectly sane men in a madhouse because you have made up a long word. They take it in good temper, walk and talk in your garden like monks who have found a vocation, are civil even to you, you damned druggist's hack. Behave not only more sanely than any of your patients, but more sanely than half the sane men outside, and you have the soul-stifling cheek to say that they give anxiety. The head of the asylum has settled it all, said Dr. Quayle, still looking down. McKeon took one of his immense strides forward and stood over the doctor with flaming eyes. If the head has settled it, let the head announce it, he said. I won't take it from you. I believe you to be a low, gibbering degenerate. Let us see the head of the asylum." See the head of the asylum, repeated Dr. Quayle. Certainly not. The tall Highlander, bending over him, put one hand on his shoulder with fatherly interest. You don't seem to appreciate the peculiar advantages of my position as a lunatic, he said. I could kill you with my left hand before such a rat as you could so much as squeak, and I wouldn't be hanged for it. I certainly agree with Mr. McKeon said Turnbull, with sobriety and perfect respectfulness, that you had better let us see the head of the institution. Dr. Quayle got to his feet in a mixture of sudden hysteria and clumsy presence of mind. Oh, certainly, he said with a weak laugh. You can see the head of the asylum if you particularly want to. He almost ran out of the room, and the two followed swiftly on his flying coat-tails. He knocked at an ordinary varnished door in the corridor. When a voice said, Come in, 
MacIan's breath went hissing back through his teeth into his chest. Turnbull was more impetuous and opened the door. It was a neat and well-appointed room entirely lined with a medical library. At the other end of it was a ponderous and polished desk with an incandescent lamp on it, the light of which was just sufficient to show a slender, well-bred figure in an ordinary medical black frock-coat, whose head, quite silvered with age, was bent over neat piles of notes. This gentleman looked up for an instant as they entered, and the lamplight fell on his glittering spectacles and long, clean-shaven face, a face which would have been simply like an aristocrat's, but that a certain lion poise of the head and long cleft in the chin made it look more like a very handsome actor's. It was only for a flash that his face was thus lifted. Then he bent his silver head over his notes once more, and said, without looking up again, I told you, Dr. Quayle, that these men were to go to cells B and C. Turnbull and MacIan looked at each other, and said more than they could ever say with tongues or swords. Among other things, they said that to that particular head of the institution it was a waste of time to appeal, and they followed Dr. Quayle out of the room. The instant they stepped out into the corridor, four sturdy figures stepped from four sides, pinioned them, and ran them along the galleries. They might very likely have thrown their captors right and left had they been inclined to resist, but for some nameless reason they were more inclined to laugh. A mixture of mad irony with childish curiosity made them feel quite inclined to see what next twist would be taken by their imbecile luck. They were dragged down countless cold avenues lined with glazed tiles, different only in being of different lengths and set at different angles. They were so many and so monotonous that to escape back by them would have been far harder than fleeing from the Hampton Court maze. Only the fact that windows grew fewer, coming at longer intervals, and the fact that when the windows did come they seemed shadowed and let in less light, showed that they were winding into the core or belly of some enormous building. After a little time, the glazed corridors began to be lit by electricity. At last, when they had walked nearly a mile in those white and polished tunnels, they came with quite a shock to the futile finality of a cul-de-sac. All that white and weary journey ended suddenly in an oblong space and a blank white wall but in the white wall there were two iron doors painted white, on which were written, respectively, in neat black capitals, B and C. "'You go in here, sir,' said the leader of the officials, quite respectfully, "'and you in here.' But before the doors had clanged upon their dazed victims, MacIan had been able to say to Turnbull, with a strange drawl of significance, "'I wonder who A is.' Turnbull made an automatic struggle before he allowed himself to be thrown into the cell. Hence it happened that he was the last to enter, and was still full of the exhilaration of the adventures for at least five minutes after the echo of the clanging door had died away. Then, when silence had sunk deep and nothing happened for two and a half hours, it suddenly occurred to him that this was the end of his life. He was hidden and sealed up in this little crack of stone, until the flesh should fall off his bones. He was dead, and the world had won. His cell was of an oblong shape, but very long in comparison with its width. It was just wide enough to permit the arms to be fully extended with the dumbbells, 
which were hung up on the left wall, very dusty. It was, however, long enough for a man to walk one thirty-fifth part of a mile if he traversed it entirely. On the same principle, a row of fixed holes, quite close together, led into those cells by pipes what was alleged to be the freshest air. For these great scientific organizers insisted that a man should be healthy, even if he was miserable. They provided a walk long enough to give him exercise, and holes large enough to give him oxygen. There their interest in human nature suddenly ceased. It seemed never to have occurred to them that the benefit of exercise belongs partly to the benefit of liberty. They had not entertained the suggestion that the open air is only one of the advantages of the open sky. They administered air in secret, but in sufficient doses, as if it were a medicine. They suggested walking, as if no man had ever felt inclined to walk. Above all, the asylum authorities insisted on their own extraordinary cleanliness. Every morning, while Turnbull was still half asleep on his iron bedstead, which was lifted halfway up the wall and clamped to it with iron, four sluices or metal mouths opened above him at the four corners of the chamber and washed it white of any defilement. Turnbull's solitary soul surged up against the sickening daily solemnity. "'I am buried alive!' he cried bitterly. They have hidden me under mountains. I shall be here till I rot. Why the blazes should it matter to them whether I am dirty or clean? Every morning and evening, an iron hatchway opened in his oblong cell, and a brown hairy hand or two thrust in a plate of perfectly cooked lentils and a big bowl of cocoa. He was not underfed any more than he was under-exercised or asphyxiated. He had ample walking space, ample air, ample and even filling food. The only objection was that he had nothing to walk towards, nothing to feast about, and no reason whatever for drawing the breath of life. Even the shape of his cell especially irritated him. It was a long, narrow parallelogram, which had a flat wall at one end, and ought to have had a flat wall at the other. But that end was broken by a wedge or angle of space, like the prow of a ship. After three days of silence and cocoa, this angle at the end began to infuriate Turnbull. It maddened him to think that two lines came together and pointed at nothing. After the fifth day he was reckless and poked his head into the corner. After twenty-five days he almost broke his head against it. Then he became quite cool and stupid again and began to examine it like a sort of Robinson Crusoe. Almost unconsciously, it was his instinct to examine outlets, and he found himself paying particular attention to the row of holes which led in the air into his last house of life. He soon discovered that these air holes were all the ends and mouths of long leaden tubes which doubtless carried air from some remote watering place near Margate. One evening, while he was engaged in the fifth investigation, he noticed something like twilight in one of these dumb mouths, as compared with the darkness of the others. Thrusting his finger in as far as it would go, he found a hole and flapping edge in the tube. This he rent open, and instantly saw a light behind. It was at least certain that he had struck some other cell. It is a characteristic of all things now called efficient, which means mechanical and calculated, that if they go wrong at all, they go entirely wrong. 
There is no power of retrieving a defeat, as in simpler and more living organisms. A strong gun can conquer a strong elephant, but a wounded elephant can easily conquer a broken gun. Thus the Prussian monarchy in the 18th century, or now, can make a strong army merely by making the men afraid. But it does it with the permanent possibility that the men may some day be more afraid of their enemies than of their officers. Thus the drainage in our cities, so long as it is quite solid, means a general safety. But if there is one leak, it means concentrated poison, an explosion of deathly germs like dynamite, a spirit of stink. Thus, indeed, all that excellent machinery which is the swiftest thing on earth in saving human labor is also the slowest thing on earth in resisting human interference. It may be easier to get chocolate for nothing out of a shopkeeper than out of an automatic machine. But if you did manage to steal the chocolate, the automatic machine would be much less likely to run after you. Turnbull was not long in discovering this truth in connection with the cold and colossal machinery of this great asylum. He had been shaken by many spiritual states since the instant when he was pitched head foremost into that private cell which was to be his private room till death. He had felt a high fit of pride and poetry which had ebbed away and left him deadly cold. He had known a period of mere scientific curiosity in the course of which he examined all the tiles of his cell, with the gratifying conclusion that they were all the same shape and size, but was greatly puzzled about the angle in the wall at the end, and also about an iron peg or a spike that stood out from the wall, the object of which he does not know to this day. When he had a period of mere madness not to be written of by decent men, but only by those few dirty novelists hallowed on by the infernal huntsmen to hunt down and humiliate human nature. This also passed, but left behind it a feverish distaste for many of the mere objects around him. Long after he had returned to sanity and such hopeless cheerfulness as a man might have on a desert island, he disliked the regular squares of the pattern of wall and floor and the triangle that terminated his corridor. Above all, he had a hatred, deep as the hell he did not believe in, for the objectless iron peg in the wall. But in all his moods, sane or insane, intolerant or stoical, he never really doubted this, that the machine held him as light and as hopelessly as he had from his birth been held by the hopeless cosmos of his own creed. He knew well the ruthless and inexhaustible resources of our scientific civilization, he no more expected rescue from a medical certificate than rescue from the solar system. In many of his Robinson Crusoe moods, he thought kindly of McKeon as of some quarrelsome schoolfellow who had long been dead. He thought of leaving in the cell when he died a rigid record of his opinions, and when he began to write them down on scraps of envelope in his pocket, he was startled to discover how much they had changed. Then he remembered the Beecham Tower, and tried to write his blazing skepticism on the wall, and discovered that it was all shiny tiles on which nothing could be either drawn or carved. Then for an instant there hung and broke above him like a high wave the whole horror of scientific imprisonment, which manages to deny a man not only liberty, but every accidental comfort of bondage. In the old filthy dungeons men could carve their prayers or protests in the rock, 
Here the white and slippery walls escaped even from bearing witness. The old prisoners could make a pet of a mouse or a beetle straight out of a hole. Here the unpierceable walls were washed every morning by an automatic sluice. There was no natural corruption and no merciful decay by which a living thing could enter in. Then James Turnbull looked up and saw the high invincible hatefulness of the society in which he lived, and saw the hatefulness of something else also, which he told himself again and again was not the cosmos in which he believed. But all the time he had never once doubted that the five sides of his cell were for him the wall of the world henceforward, and it gave him a shock of surprise even to discover the faint light through the aperture in the ventilation tube but he had forgotten how close efficiency has to pack everything together, and how easily, therefore, a pipe here or there may leak. Turnbull thrust his first finger down the aperture, and at last managed to make a slight further fissure in the piping. The light that came up from beyond was very faint, and apparently indirect. It seemed to fall from some hole or window higher up. As he was screwing his eye to peer at this grey and greasy twilight, he was astonished to see another human finger, very long and lean, come down from above towards the broken pipe and hook it up to something higher. The lighted aperture was abruptly blackened and blocked, presumably by a face and mouth, for something human spoke down the tube, though the words were not clear. "'Who is that?' asked Turnbull, trembling with excitement yet wary and quite resolved not to spoil any chance. After a few indistinct sounds, the voice came down with a strong Argyleshire accent. I say, Turnbull, we couldn't fight through this tube, could we? Sentiments beyond speech surged up in Turnbull and silenced him for a space just long enough to be painful. Then he said with his old gaiety, I vote we talk a little first. I don't want to murder the first man I have met for ten million years. I know what you mean, answered the other. It has been awful. For a mortal month I have been alone with God. Turnbull started, and it was on the tip of his tongue to answer, Alone with God? Then you do not know what loneliness is. But he answered, after all, in his old defiant style, Alone with God, were you? and I suppose you found His Majesty's society rather monotonous? Oh, no, said MacIan, and his voice shuddered. It was a great deal too exciting. After a very long silence, the voice of MacIan said, What do you really hate most in your place? You'd think I was really mad if I told you, answered Turnbull bitterly. Then I expect it's the same as mine, said the other voice. I am sure it's not the same as anybody's, said Turnbull, for it has no rhyme or reason. Perhaps my brain really has gone, but I detest that iron spike in the left wall more than the damned desolation or the damned cocoa. Have you got one in your cell? Not now, replied MacIan with serenity. I've pulled it out. His fellow prisoner could only repeat the words. I pulled it out the other day when I was off my head, continued the tranquil highland voice. It looked so unnecessary. You must be ghastly strong, said Turnbull. One is when one is mad, was the careless reply, and it had worn a little loose in the socket. Even now I've got it out, I can't discover what it was for. 
but I found out something a long sight funnier. What do you mean? asked Turnbull. I have found out where A is, said the other. Three weeks afterwards, McKeon had managed to open up communications which made his meaning plain. By that time, the two captives had fully discovered and demonstrated that weakness in the very nature of modern machinery to which we have already referred. The very fact that they were isolated from all companions meant that they were free from all spies. And as there are no jailers to be bribed, so there were none to be baffled. Machinery brought them their cocoa and cleaned their cells. That machinery was as helpless as it was pitiless. A little patient violence, conducted day after day amid constant mutual suggestion, opened an irregular hole in the wall, large enough to let in a small man, in the exact place where there had been before the tiny ventilation holes. Turnbull tumbled somehow into McKeon's apartment, and his first glance found out that the iron spike was indeed plucked from its socket, and left, moreover, another ragged hole into some hollow place behind but for this McKeon's cell was the duplicate of Turnbull's, a long oblong ending in a wedge and lined with cold and lustrous tiles. The small hole from which the peg had been displaced was in that short oblique wall at the end nearest to Turnbull's. That individual looked at it with a puzzled face. "'What is in there?' he asked. McKeon answered briefly, "'Another cell.' "'But where can the door of it be?' asked his companion, even more puzzled. The doors of our cells are at the other end. It has no door, said Evan. In the pause of perplexity that followed, an eerie and sinister feeling crept over Turnbull's stubborn soul in spite of himself. The notion of the doorless room chilled him with that sense of half-witted curiosity which one has when something horrible is half understood. James Turnbull, said McKeon, in a low and shaken voice. These people hate us more than Nero hated Christians, and fear us more than any man feared Nero. They have filled England with frenzy and galloping in order to capture us and wipe us out, in order to kill us. And they have killed us, for you and I have only made a hole in our coffins. But though this hatred that they felt for us is bigger than they felt for Bonaparte, and more plain and practical than they would feel for Jack the Ripper, yet it is not we whom the people of this place hate most. A cold and quivering impatience continued to crawl up Turnbull's spine. He had never felt so near to superstition and supernaturalism, and it was not a pretty sort of superstition either. There is another man more fearful and hateful, went on McKeon, in his low monotone voice and they have buried him even deeper. God knows how they did it, for he was let in by neither door nor window, nor lowered through any opening above. I expect these iron handles that we both hate have been part of some damned machinery for walling him up. He is there. I have looked through the hole at him, but I cannot stand looking at him long, because his face is turned away from me and he does not move." All Turnbull's unnatural and uncompleted feelings found their outlet in rushing to the aperture and looking into the unknown room. It was a third oblong cell, exactly like the other two, except that it was doorless, and except that on one of the walls was painted a large black A, like the B and C outside their own doors. 
The letter in this case was not painted outside, because this prison had no outside. On the same kind of tiled floor, of which the monotonous squares had maddened Turnbull's eye and brain, was sitting a figure which was startlingly short even for a child, only that the enormous head was ringed with hair of a frosty grey. The figure was draped, both insecurely and insufficiently, in what looked like the remains of a brown flannel dressing-gown. An emptied cup of cocoa stood on the floor beside it, and the creature had his big grey head cocked at a particular angle of inquiry or attention, which amid all that gathering gloom and mystery struck one as comic, if not cocksure. After six still seconds, Turnbull could stand it no longer, but called out to the dwarvish thing. In what words, heaven knows. The thing got up with the promptitude of an animal, and turning round, offered the spectacle of two owlish eyes, and a huge grey and white beard, not unlike the plumage of an owl. This extraordinary beard covered him literally to his feet, not that that was very far, and perhaps it was well that it did, for portions of his remaining clothing seemed to fall off whenever he moved. One talks trivially of a face like parchment, but this old man's face was so wrinkled that it was like a parchment loaded with hieroglyphics. The lines of his face were so deep and complex that one could see five or ten different faces besides the real one, as one can see them in an elaborate wallpaper. And yet while his face seemed like a scripture older than the gods, his eyes were quite bright, blue, and startled like those of a baby. They looked as if they had only an instant before been fitted into his head. Everything depended so obviously on whether this buried monster spoke that Turnbull did not know or care whether he himself had spoken. He said something or nothing, and then he waited for this dwarvish voice that had been hidden under the mountains of the world. At last it did speak, and spoke in English, with a foreign accent that was neither Latin nor Teutonic. He suddenly stretched out a long and very dirty forefinger, and cried in a voice of clear recognition like a child's, "'That's a hole!' He digested the discovery for some seconds, sucking his finger, and then he cried with a crow of laughter, "'And that's a head come through it!' The hilarious energy in this idiot attitude gave Turnbull another sick turn. He had grown to tolerate those dreary and mumbling madmen who trailed themselves about the beautiful asylum gardens. But there was something new and subversive of the universe in the combination of so much cheerful decision with a body without a brain. "'Why did they put you in such a place?' he asked, at last, with embarrassment. "'Good place, yes,' said the old man, nodding a great many times and beaming like a flattered landlord. "'Good shape, long and narrow, with a point, like this,' and he made lovingly with his hands a map of the room in the air. "'But that's not the best,' he added confidentially. "'Square's very good. I have a nice long holiday and can count them, but that's not the best.' "'What is the best?' asked Turnbull in great distress. "'Spike is the best.' said the old man, opening his blue eyes blazing. It sticks out. The words Turnbull spoke broke out of him in pure pity. Can't we do anything for you? he said. I am very happy, said the other alphabetically. 
You are a good man. Can I help you? No, I don't think you can, sir, said Turnbull with rough pathos. I am glad you are contented at least. The weird old person opened his broad blue eyes and fixed Turnbull with a stare extraordinarily severe. You are quite sure, he said, I cannot help you? Quite sure, thank you, said Turnbull with broken brevity. Good day. Then he turned to McKeon, who was standing close behind him, and whose face, now familiar in all its moods, told him easily that Evan had heard the whole of the strange dialogue. "'Curse those cruel beasts!' cried Turnbull. "'They've turned him into an imbecile just by burying him alive. His brain's like a pinpoint now.' "'You are sure he is a lunatic?' said Evan slowly. "'Not a lunatic,' said Turnbull. "'An idiot!' He just points to things and says that they stick out. He had a notion that he could help us, said MacIan moodily, and began to pace towards the other end of his cell. Yes, it was a bit pathetic, assented Turnbull, such a thing offering help, and besides, Hello, hello, what's the matter? God Almighty guide us all, said MacIan. He was standing heavy and still at the other end of the room, and staring quietly at the door which for thirty days had sealed them up from the sun. Turnbull, following the other's eye, stared at the door likewise, and then he also uttered an exclamation. The iron door was standing about an inch and a half open. He said, began Evan in a trembling voice, he offered, Come along, you fool, shouted Turnbull with a sudden and furious energy. I see it all now and it's the best stroke of luck in the world. You pulled out that iron handle that had screwed up his cell, and it somehow altered the machinery and opened all the doors. Seizing MacIan by the elbow, he bundled him bodily out into the open corridor, and ran him on till they saw daylight through a half-darkened window. All the same, said Evan, like one answering in an ordinary conversation. He did ask you whether he could help you. All this wilderness of windowless passages was so built into the heart of that fortress of fear that it seemed more than an hour before the fugitives had any good glimpse of the outer world. They did not even know what hour of the day it was, and when, turning a corner, they saw the bare tunnel of the corridor end abruptly in a shining square of garden, the grass burning in that strong evening sunshine which makes it burnished gold rather than green, the abrupt opening onto the earth seemed like a hole knocked in the wall of heaven. Only once or twice in life is it permitted to a man thus to see the very universe from outside, and feel existence itself as an adorable adventure not yet begun. As they found this shining escape out of that hellish labyrinth, they both had simultaneously the sensation of being babies unborn, of being asked by God if they would like to live upon the earth. They were looking in at one of the seven gates of Eden. Turnbull was the first to leap into the garden, with an earth-spurning leap like that of one who could really spread his wings and fly. MacIan, who came an instant after, was less full of mere animal gusto, and fuller of a more fearful and quivering pleasure in the clear and innocent flower colors and the high and holy trees. With one bound they were in that cool and cleared landscape, 
and they found just outside the door the black-clad gentleman with the cloven chin smilingly regarding them and his chin seemed to grow longer and longer as he smiled end of chapter 17 recording by trisha g